In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I'm excited because we have a full crew today. I'm Angela Serser, retired FBI agent and profiler and previously a special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives. And I'm Susan Kostler-Drew. I'm also a retired FBI agent and former profiler. And I'm Bob Drew. I am a retired FBI agent and profiler. And prior to that, was a police officer for 12 years. We're going to be talking about a series of rapes that occurred over a span of a year in Texas. The offender became known by the moniker the Twilight Rapist because his attacks always occurred just before sunrise. One seemingly unusual aspect of this case was that his victims ranged in age from 59 years old to 96 years old. At the time, the Twilight Rapist was one of the most wanted men in the Lone Star State, with investigators from several sheriff's offices, the Texas Rangers, and the San Antonio office of the FBI all on the hunt for him. A task force was formed, and Bob and Susan were called in to provide assistance with an unknown offender profile. The first known offense attributed to this offender occurred in Lavaca County in January of 2009. It was 5.30 in the morning, and the victim, who was a 66-year-old white female, was sitting on her sofa writing checks to pay her bills when she heard a scratching at her front door. She thought it might be her cat's. The noise subsided, but then a few minutes later, she heard it again, and the front door was suddenly pushed open by the offender, who entered the residence and asked, where is everyone? He then grabbed the victim underneath her rib cage and put his hand over her mouth and part of her nose, at which time the victim tried to bite him. The offender pushed the victim into the bedroom and threw her to the floor. He pulled off her pants and got on top of her, kneeling on her legs to hold her down. The victim screamed and the offender told her to stop or he would kill her. The offender sexually assaulted the victim using his finger and while doing so, he commented, oh, you're a virgin. During the assault, the offender also told the victim to touch his genitalia and stated, it might get erect. Following this assault, the offender got off the victim and asked where her cell phone was. She told him she didn't have one, after which he grabbed her purse. The victim had a bag in her purse that contained $10,000 in cash, which he took. He then warned the victim not to go outside for three minutes or he would kill her. He then left through the front door, closing it behind him. The victim told investigators the offender was a tall black man with short hair. He was dressed in all black, including black pants, a jacket, and a hooded sweatshirt. He wore the hood on his head. The victim said the offender was soft-spoken with no detectable accent. 
The next known sexual assault occurred a little over a month later in February of 2009. This was also in Lavaca County. The victim was a white 79-year-old female. The victim encountered the offender at 5.30 a.m. just as she was leaving her house to attend church services. He was crouched outside her front door and leapt toward her, grabbing her arm and forcing her back into the residence. The offender wanted to know where the victim's purse was, and she told him she didn't have any money. He searched it anyway and found no money. The offender engaged in forced sexual intercourse with the victim for approximately one minute, but could not continue due to erectile dysfunction. He then forced the victim to touch his genitalia, and he also fondled himself. However, he was still unable to relieve his impotency. The victim still had her keys in her hand, so she tried to jab him and scratch him. When the offender left, he told the victim, I'll see you. The victim described the offender as a tall, slender, black man who spoke with a soft voice. The offender goes on to commit eight additional attacks in Leon, Bell, Falls, Caldwell, and DeWitt counties through November of 2009. And there was a lot of unique behavior he exhibited. The first thing that we did was look at what the victims had described and how they had described this offender. In a couple of cases, although in the first two cases he was described as a black male, in one or two cases that, that changed to either an Hispanic male or a white male. All indicated that he was basically a tall, thinner man and there were no unusual odors. For instance, there was no body odor and that he had short hair, that he was soft-spoken, and in some cases he was described as being well-spoken. A few of the victims didn't even look at him at all or couldn't get a look at him because of the low lighting. Yes, and as we know, eyewitness identification, particularly by the victims when they're under this extreme pressure and they are subject to extreme fear, we can't expect total accuracy from every victim. And so we take that in that light. And the things that we come to rely on in a case like this is the fact that certain aspects of the description were repeated by separate victims. Those we've come to feel are more likely than not being accurate. Whereas some variation is always there. The more suspect descriptions we receive from separate victims, the more of a degree of certainty we have as to what his physical presence is like. There were cases where the suspect spent considerably more time with the victim than in other cases. And in those cases, the victims obviously had the opportunity to study the individual more than they would in other cases where he came and went fairly quickly. One thing we noticed was that Although there were, there were some attempts to obscure the victim's view of him, it was not really, compared to other aspects of these crimes, it was not really an organized or effective way to obscure his identity. He um, may have pulled a hoodie up over his head, but he wasn't wearing a face mask or something to entirely obscure his face. 
This led us to believe that he had not, at least to the victim's knowledge, he had not been in contact with them before, and he did not fear that they could identify him through seeing him. And although the first two victims described him as being a black male, other victims described him as being a white male or Hispanic. As I mentioned, a few of the victims did not get a look at him at all because of the low lighting. We tended also to believe the physical description of the fact that he was slender because some of the ways that he gained entry, and in one case in particular, was that he had removed one panel of an overhead garage door, which is approximately, say, 12 to 14 inches square. So in order to fit through that space, he was not an exceptionally large man. He certainly was not, would not be an obese individual. And so this was corroboration on the, the slender and physically fit description by these victims. And he's agile. Being able to climb through a window takes some ability. Yes. Also, we noticed that, that he was quite adept at the different skills involved in burglary. In some of the cases, he actually removed and completely dissembled a window in order to gain entrance into the home. Not only that, it seemed, at least in one case, that he had dissembled the window and left it in such a way that it would be found by law enforcement or whoever happened to find it and realized that someone had taken great pains to dissemble this window and lay it down exactly as it had been on the house. And what was interesting about that one particular case is that the area police, a task force had been formed by the governor and the area police were on this this task force and were patrolling these neighborhoods heavily and had actually formed up at the time that this offense had occurred, had formed up in a, a parking lot down the street. Rather than the offender's behavior, evidence of the offender's behavior seeming to be rushed, panicked, et cetera, it seemed as if in this case, he had been almost more meticulous and it was almost prideful. And so he had, I mean, throughout this series, he had demonstrated that he was very adept at burglary, but it also seemed that there was an element where he received some satisfaction from outsmarting those who would try to apprehend him. He also was very organized in his approach to these victims or to the perpetration of his crimes, as was evident in the second offense where he was laying in wait for the victim to leave her house to attend a church service, which she regularly did. We find that in following cases that while there were successful attempts to enter the home or to burglarize the home prior to the entry that involved the sexual assault. This shows us that there was definitely some surveillance and observation of the victims taking place prior to the crimes occurring. This occurred in several of the cases where sometimes maybe as much as two weeks, three weeks prior to the sexual assault occurring, investigation showed that there had been a burglary of the home. 
And in some cases, this may have been initially when reported, dismissed by family or second guessed, maybe causing the victim to even second guess themselves a little bit when they reported a purse missing, or maybe a purse was found outside the home rather than inside the home where the victim was sure that she had left it. And yet, as it turns out, these were cases of, and, and of course, with elderly women, this might be something if it was reported to the family, gee, I think my purse was stolen, or I think there's something missing from the house that loved ones of the victim might think, well, maybe mom's just getting a little un, uh, you know, forgetful. But then approximately two weeks later, then the perpetrator, the suspect, enters the victim's home again, and this time interacts with the, with the victim. That's a great point about the surveillance. I had noted in victim number three that the victim had stated to the offender that her son was going to be there soon um, in an attempt to get him to leave. And he said back to her, not until 7.30. So clearly he'd been doing significant surveillance to know exactly what time her son would be there to pick her up. And that was just one of the other cases in addition to ones you mentioned. He knew her pattern of life. Yes. And that knowledge could be could have been gained by surveillance, could have been gained by, by prior entry into the home, or a combination of the two. But he had done his homework. This was indicative, again, of someone who was very adept at the crime of burglary. And his knowledge of people's patterns of life might lead one to think that, well, he must be local. Maybe he observes them because he's constantly in that area. And yet, in this series, which is an unusual aspect for a serial rape, serial burglaries, anything of that sort, there was an area in which this offender committed his offenses that had a radius of 450 miles in central Texas. He clearly was traveling. Maybe not in all of them. They may have been some that were closer to him than others, but he had clearly been traveling and yet still did his homework enough. So spent time in this area that might be far from his base and clearly gained enough knowledge so that he was aware of their patterns of life. He had done enough homework, I'll use that term, that he had done enough homework to know that he was not going to encounter another individual once inside the home. The worst mistake a burglar might make is assuming that a victim lives alone only to encounter another individual, perhaps an armed individual, or someone who can overpower him, etc., once he gets inside a home. This offender displayed no fear of such thing, and in fact, when a son was mentioned, he knew the time that he that that son would be expected. He also cut phone lines and he cut them prior to the attacks. And in some instances, victims reported several weeks earlier that their phone lines had been cut. He did a full dry run on the, the burglary so that although cutting the phone lines when you're more or less doing a kind of a reconnaissance type burglary cutting the phone lines would be unnecessary. On the other hand, it showed, first of all, he could ensure when he, when he entered the homes that the phones were in fact disabled by whatever he had done at the connection. Secondly, if he were 
surveilling the home. He could see how long it took for them to discover that, what the phone company's response was, et cetera. Maybe not in all cases, but it probably in at least one. Another interesting aspect of his uh, selection was the homes in which many of these victims lived. Although his initial assault and his latter assault, two of his latter assaults were in apartments, many of these attacks took place in residences in rural areas and in homes that were quite similar to one another. A 60s style ranch home, all of which basically had the same layout inside. So in addition to his selection of certain victims, he was also selecting homes in which he felt comfortable operating. He would know once he got inside the basic layout of all of these residences. And these were homes that he felt a certain confidence in in knowing how to burglarize. There are, of course, variations on how much security people use, et cetera, but there are physical attributes to each home that if you're familiar with them, you have an easier time entering that home. For instance, a home that's a 1960s vintage home, you would know probably the type of window that would have been installed. You would be familiar with how to disassemble those. You would probably be aware of the type of lock that they had. And again, these are elderly folks living alone who've never had problems doing so and probably were not the most security conscious folks as elderly people tend not to be. They had had no problems, so they saw no reason to enhance their security. When you pick that type of home, you're aware of probably what goes with that. And it just makes his job, quote, easier. Now, if we talk about some unusual behavior or some unusual attributes of this individual, aside from the burglar, this individual is sexually dysfunctional. He has difficulty obtaining and maintaining an erection. In some cases, he attempts penile penetration and does not accomplish it, may switch then to digital penetration. He has done other sexual acts such as sucking their breasts, but basically he has, it's a difficulty and it's one he is aware of and even says to one of the victims, directs her to touch his penis and says it might get erect. The other thing is he does on some cases achieve penile penetration and even ejaculation, but it's not a given in all of these cases. In fact, it's it's more unlikely than likely that he will, he will achieve penile penetration. At the same time, this is not something that he is not doing because he's concerned about evidence. While he seems fairly evidence conscious, as far as cutting phone lines, as far as his, his means of entry and having done surveillance, et cetera, there's some very meticulous behaviors associated with, with his crimes he doesn't seem particularly concerned about evidence, specifically DNA evidence. In the case of penile penetration and ejaculation, clearly there's going to be DNA evidence unless he's using a condom, etc. In the case, though, where he cannot achieve an erection, 
and he opts to do something else, what he does is, is maybe he kisses or sucks their breasts and then leaves saliva, which can then be the source of the DNA analysis. He doesn't seem at all concerned with this, or at least he displays no concern with this, except after he achieves ejaculation with one victim, he does draw a bath and have her sit in the bathtub. So he is attempting then to destroy evidence through washing away any semen that he may have left. This certainly does not speak of this suspect's sophistication when it comes to physical evidence. He may well be aware that he should obscure physical evidence, but it's really his only attempts to do that is when he has ejaculated. It's also a possible indication is not as concerned about DNA evidence because he knows he has no prior criminal history and therefore would not be in any type of DNA database that could link him to these crimes. One thing I noticed in terms of his impotency is that he didn't seem to be bothered by it. In some cases, we have seen when a rapist cannot achieve an erect penis, they become very angry and violent toward the victim. This did not happen in this case. He did not seem concerned by it, and he found other means. He's adaptable. Not only adaptable, but this is a, a speculation, and it cannot be short of him describing himself. His selection of these victims, his sexual dysfunction may have been a part of his decision to target this type of victim in that an older woman who maybe is not very sexually versed may have had one lifelong partner or in the case of, of one of the victims may have never had a sexual partner. I believe that with his sexual dysfunction, he may have been very intimidated by someone his age or younger that was more sexually active with uh, a greater number of partners. And when you're talking about the victim that may have never had a sexual encounter, the one person that he believed and verbalized that he believed she was a virgin when he digitally penetrated her, that is the only one that he actually revisited. Yes. Overall, when you're selecting these victims, when you're going to all this trouble, why would you do that? He does take expensive items. He also takes some items that's, that are seemingly very particular to his taste and aren't very valuable. And he also takes cash. None of this seems reason enough for an individual to undertake such risky behavior where he is risking his life He's risking apprehension. He is putting a great deal of effort into these crimes. And it doesn't make sense unless you take into account that he is motivated by acting upon sexual fantasy. And his particular sexual fantasy also is reflected in his victim selection. Exactly. And the victim I was just speaking about that he visited on two occasions she had actually moved after the first encounter and he was able to find her 
So she was the only one where he had mentioned the fact that she may be a virgin. And so it seemed like that was something very significant to him as far as his fantasy was concerned. Although he seemed, as, as Julia commented, although he seemed not to be bothered by his sexual dysfunction or his inability to obtain an erection, it clearly was a consideration for him. I believe he was well aware of how that might be received by other people, people unlike the victims he chose. And he was looking for some acceptance from his victims. Part of this fantasy, as Angela has already mentioned, is this is, is an ideal, wants it to be an ideal situation. Ask the victim the second time, did you miss me? Is described as soft-spoken does not use violence against his victims, except in cases where they try to fight him off, um, either try to bite him. I, I believe I mean, there's a couple of the victims that he slaps or handles more roughly when they try to, to fight him. Um, and he tells them, don't do that or I'll kill you. But in cases where he doesn't have any resistance, he's throughout these described as, as soft-spoken in one case, almost even polite. That's all part of his fantasy. He wants this to seem as though this is a consensual encounter. This is a consensual relationship. And in fact, eventually when he's caught, this is exactly how he tries to explain himself in that this wasn't a victim, that this was a consensual and willing relationship. So victim number one ended up also being victim number nine. And he even referred to her as his girlfriend, which yes. again goes back to the points that Angela and Susan have made about his fantasy. He did have one victim who was a little more prepared than the others. And this was an 81-year-old woman who heard someone moving about in her living room while she was in bed. She was so sure of what she heard, and it, it had to do with the carpet. There was a certain noise that a carpet made, the carpet made when it was being walked on. And she was so sure of it that she yelled out, I know you're in here and I am armed. The offender then went into her bedroom, either not believing her. At any event, it, it was in, a res in response to her calling out. At which time, from beneath her pillow, she drew a revolver and pulled the trigger point blank while it was pointed at the offender. It clicked and the bullet did not fire. She then pulled the trigger again. Again, it clicked and, it, and the bullet did not discharge. The offender though, realizing that she had a weapon began to retreat and he, he was intent on exiting the home. This intended victim pursued him on foot and ran through the house. And as he ran out the door, fired the weapon again in his direction. And this time it went off. It missed him, but he just continued running and ran away. We have him doing a lot of assessment before he commits these crimes. But like any of us, at times we assess someone as being one way and we find out that they are in fact another way. And in this particular case, this could have been victim number eight. However, 
by that time, there had been some publicity about these assaults, and she was a little more prepared than some of the other victims, and so had made sure that she had a weapon close by should she be targeted. That's it for this episode of The Consult. On the next episode, Angela, Susan, Bob, and I will continue our discussion of the Twilight Rapist. We'll discuss victimology and go more in-depth into the analysis. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening. <laughs>